0: Continue this theological discussion in a car or in the jailhouse
1: the cops. Welcome back to Everything Just Changed. Bryce Hales and Brad Edwards are here to try to help you navigate faithfulness to Jesus in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world. And we're asking the question: how do we receive rather than achieve our identity? Over the past couple of episodes, we've been talking about the reality that our modern culture forces an individualistic identity formation process upon us that's leaving us more isolated and anxious. Than any previous generation, and we've contrasted that with the gospel approach to identity formation, which is something that we receive and is therefore incredibly and inherently stable. Today, we're going to sit down with a guest to talk more about the sources and effects of individualism. Our guest today is Professor Carl Truman. Carl Truman is Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College And the author of the new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, that really is tracing the intellectual history of the rise of radical individualism in Western culture. Dr. Truman, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. It's
2: great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, and you just were mentioning that you've probably done about 50 of these interviews, which is kind of mind-blowing, but I think a, a testament to just the significance of this book.
2: I'm getting bored with my own work at this point, but I will, <laughs> I will do my best to fake enthusiasm for my own work. You know?
1: Oh, wow.
0: Well, very, you wow. just gave us an implicit invitation to uh, really try and get creative here then. So that's, that's good news
1: for us too. <laughs> well, let, let's start in what is probably not for you a new place, but you start the argument of your book in a really interesting way, I thought. Uh, the, the statement, I am a man trapped in a woman's body, and you say not too long ago, that statement would have been incomprehensible, and yet today it is a sentence that many in our society regard as not only meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to another irrational phobia. Is that not just common sense today that that you might be a a man trapped in a woman's body?
2: Yes, indeed. In fact, just before this program, I noticed that Joe Biden, the new president, has signed into law, I think, uh, essentially transgender rights for state-funded h- high schools. So wow. you know, women's sports is effectively yeah, women's dead sports. At, at this exactly. point. Um, yeah, yeah uh, and for a president to sign an executive motion like that means he's got to be pretty confident that most people will think it makes sense. Sure. So yeah, it is common sense now. What what fascinates me is that just 30 years ago, 10 years ago even, that would have been regarded as quite bizarre. And Hmm. and the question for me is, okay, so what – has to take place in society for that sentence to make sense. It rests, if you like, it doesn't come out of nowhere, but it rests upon society already having decided that a whole heap of other things are true. And my book is essentially an attempt to explore how some of those ideas become not simply the preserve of you know, French intellectuals in the Sorbonne debating mm. uh, post-structuralism, but the the intuitions, the instincts mm. of that that mythical creature, the average man or woman uh, in the street.
1: Yeah, so I, I think a lot of conservative and or religious people, when they start talking about cultural shifts, and and you know, usually the word decline is used that we're living through, start talking about the sexual revolution in the '60s and '70s. And yet you you made this sort of obvious, uh, once you see it, observation that the sexual revolution did not lead to the sexual revolution, but was in fact <laughs> the result of something that happened much, much earlier which is essentially, I mean, I think you take 400 pages to sort of trace that narrative in the book. But could you maybe just give us the highlights for, the, th- for those who haven't yet had the chance to, to read your book? What, what are some of those developments? You start with Rousseau, essentially.
2: Yeah, well, well first of all, I'd, I'd like to, to sort of preface everything I say by saying the book only tells a partial narrative. Mm-hmm. One of the big factors in the development of, of the modern self is technology. And really, there's an entirely Separate book to be written on that. Uh, it's you know, the world we live in now would not be possible or plausible without a significant number of technological developments as well. That that I don't deal with. What what I try to do in the book is is, is look at uh, emblematic or. or powerful representative figures of certain intellectual and cultural trends at particular points in history and to give the the narrative in sort of big blocks i would say that the first part of my narrative is tracing the what i call the psychologization of the self that is the the turn inward the point at which people start to believe that what they feel inside is most important second stage in the narrative is really when uh, people start to think that what's most important about that which is inside is is their sexual desires when that that inner person becomes primarily a sexual person and the third part of the narrative is how that then gets welded to the political culture in which we live whereby restrictions on sexual activity are seen as being socially and politically repressive and the key figures i see in each uh, period are in the first uh, the psychologization of the self uh, jean jacques rousseau the Swiss philosopher, and his heirs, his heirs in the cultural domain, the Romantics, the great poets. I'm particularly interested mm-hmm. in the English Romantics. Uh, in the book, I look at Wordsworth, mm-hmm. uh, Shelley, Blake, and um, to an extent, Thomas de Quincy. You could tell a similar story from the French or German side of things, uh, representatives of the Romantic movement in both France and, and Germany. The second block of the story is really It's sort of two-part, I suppose. On the one hand, there is what I would call the the destabilizing of human nature at the hands of Marx, uh, Darwin, uh, and uh, Nietzsche. Uh, They're the ones who, who sort of really bring into question whether there is such a thing as human nature that has a fixed moral structure. And then on to Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud is the is the great theorist of the idea that yes, he, he sort of he go he's with the romantics in terms of yes, you are your feelings and your desires. Mm-hmm. Actually, your real feelings and your real desires, they lurk in the unconscious and they are mm. powerfully sexual. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, of course, what Freud does is he moves sex from where I would say the Bible. And human history up to that point had generally located it in terms of human behavior into the realm of of a way of thinking about human identity. Sex becomes not what you do, it's what you are, hence terms like straight, gay, bisexual. These things start to make sense. And then the final phase is is really the the move that's made in the 1930s through the 1960s, where increasingly a certain number of left-wing thinkers start to think of oppression in terms of the regulation of sexual morality by society, and therefore true freedom can only be achieved by the demolition of what they would have seen as a bourgeois, middle-class morality, uh, and I think that one no longer has to be a, a new left Marxist to sort of hold on to that position. A lot of people now would think that the government in being involved in, in policing sexual behavior is oppressive. It's become part of the, the general social and cultural ethos. So that's the story in a, in a nutshell.
0: That is an incredible summary. And gosh, I want to I ask a question that kind of feels like is adjacent to this timeline that you're talking about in a lot of ways. So I'm, I'm a pastor of a church plant in boulder colorado and boulder is referred to often as the people's republic of boulder oh, yeah. and that's not an exaggeration in a lot of ways i've been,
2: I've been to boulder it's so I, I loved it but it's a weird place
0: <laughs> yeah totally absolutely and, and we're actually in a suburb where just outside of boulder that kind of the the hippies that made boulder really cool who got gentrified out of boulder they like landed in my place and planted their flag and said over my dead bodies are you going to make me move again right so like we're, we're kind of Even crunchier than Boulder in some ways, but the the secular narrative of Christianity and especially the American Church is one that I've I've always felt this tension between like there's a degree to which this is true, but also a it has become a caricature, and that is repression of yes, sex and sexuality, sexual urges and desires, but also kind of feelings and emotions generally that leads to right. a, a lack of emotional intelligence. And and you can trace this narrative all the way back and through to the Puritans and the Scarlet Letter and just the the, the intense guilt and shame that is ascribed in particular to sex. Now, Everything that you're saying, you've said so far in terms of tracing this narrative and bringing this to like sex having this kind of outsized role in our understanding of identity and our and of ourselves and human nature, it feels like the culture wars that we have been subjected to in so many ways over the last several years is seems to be like almost a new frontier of this tension, where it feels like the church has almost uncritically been like, no, this is not true, but also hasn't given like a compelling narrative as an alternative to it. What happened to that narrative within the church? Why? It, it feels like if, if what you're saying is true with this historical timeline, it feels like we've just seeded all of that ground in that territory rather than actually trying to tell a more beautiful story.
1: I had a, a, cu- a couple in our church whose marriage dissolved maybe 18 months ago. And, you know, one of the partners is is saying to me, you know essentially saying well we we have never been fundamentally sexually compatible, and certainly God wants us to be happy mm. and so this relationship that I'm pursuing, <laughs> you know this affair that I'm having that is destroying my marriage is got to be God's will for my future, yeah, and we kind of go, oh, wait, hold on <laughs> how how do we even begin like we got to go back so many steps." To begin to untangle what's really going on here,
2: yeah, I mean these are huge questions, and of course, part of the the problem in answering them is that the narrative I've told uh, contains a lot of truth as well. Mm. Uh, when you look at the 18th century, okay, I focused on Rousseau and the Romantics, but in the 18th century, at the same time as you have Rousseau and the Romantics, you have Jonathan Edwards mm. and. Uh, the Great uh, Awakening. You have the rise of Wesleyan evangelicalism. And a good case can be made for saying that the kind of concerns that we find in the Great Awakening or in in Wesleyan revivalism uh, are very similar to the ones you find in Romanticism. It's a desire to find uh, an authentic experience. And there's truth Hmm. in that, because we are we're not just brains on sticks. We aren't Mm. just doctrinal computers as Christians. We are affective beings as well. Mm. Uh, And I think one of the challenges for Christianity, one of the challenges particularly perhaps for Protestant Christianity, has always been balancing the the affective with the dogmatic or the affective with the doctrinal. So Mm. what you're pointing to is not in some ways a new problem, that the sexual dimension of it may well be. Uh, a new thing coming through, but that mm. that balance or that relationship between what we believe and how we feel what we believe has been something that I think is it, 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 it has been difficult throughout the centuries. Mm. Uh, then, when you come down, particularly to the the twentieth century, of course, the, you get the rise of you know, the rise of of media, and this is where the, the technological story gets. Yeah, it sort of kicks in, or in one dimension, kicks in. Uh, in the past, when we had pre, you know, pre-IT, pre-television, pre-automobile communities, the vision of what life was all about was relatively easy for communities to control and project. Now, of course, every time you switch on the TV, we're having messages sent to us about what life should be like, hmm. and that message is predominantly you should be happy and anything that gets in the way of your happiness is bad and wrong. And I think that inevitably shapes Christians the same way as it shapes non-Christians. So the kind of, you know, God wants me to be happy, uh, I, I'm almost inclined to facetiously say, no, actually, God wants you to be miserable, uh, but then to enjoy him forever when you get to heaven. Uh, mm. There is a sense in which, you know, we'll say God has a terrible plan for your life. Then you're going to die, but then you're going to go to glory. Uh, mm. That sef- definitely seems to be the sort of the message of Second Corinthians, for example, in the New Testament. Mm. But that mm. is as antithetical as it gets. And of course, then the pressure on the church one of the one of the geniuses of the American experiment is freedom of religion. and Tocqueville notes this in the early nineteenth century. One of the things that does is it leads to this proliferation of of churches, uh, which is on one level that's a great thing. on the yeah. other level, it turns the church into a competitor in the marketplace. Yes. Oh, you know, man. Uh, and, yes. And Bottom line is, you know, if, if at my church I'm saying to you, God has a terrible plan for your life and then you're going to die. And yeah. the guy down the road is saying, God has a wonderful plan for your life. You're going to be really happy.
1: Yeah, who's yeah. gonna
2: who's gonna attract the customers?
1: Yeah, the the megachurch is really is really pushing the God has a terrible plan for your life message. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> well, no, actually, that's really related because I, I feel like, and one of my favorite quotes I uh, of all time is you know those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it, and I, I cannot help but think and feel like so much of what you're describing, in many ways, has been smuggled into especially modern day evangelicalism historically through the Trojan horse that was Charles Finney and the emotionalism and that emphasis on experience and expression in ways that validated and rubber stamped that as a category, even within the walls of the church, such that it was just a matter of time before someone was able to articulate a secular version of that, that set itself up as as far more transcendent even. And I'm just it's it's ironic that you know I know you use the language of uh, you know a therapeutic or uh, understanding of identity that you know if therapy is supposed to be integrative like our, our mind heart body hands soul like all of this is supposed to be like one kind of unified person how much of this is just relying on the on a humanity that is not integrated well like it doesn't feel healthy to have so many different bifurcated parts of human nature.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct, and and this is why I do think that that the solution, if there is a solution from the church's perspective, has to be. Uh, uh, a community one. One of, the, one of the answers is we have to be a strong community. Uh, and, I'm, you know, I'm being facetious when I say God has a terrible plan for your life. Clearly, there is, there is, a, there is a love and a belonging. We want our community, Christian communities to be attractive precisely because they address the kind of things that you're talking about. But they may be attractive in ways that, that the world doesn't necessarily want. I mean, one of the attractive things about the church is mm. I assume when I die, I will probably not die alone. There yeah. will be somebody with me. Now, that's, you know, the idea of my dying is not attractive at all. But Mm. the idea of at least having a community with me when I die, that's Mm. a powerful, that's a powerful thing. Mm. So, yeah, I think Mm. you're correct. And you point to the complexity of the solution. This isn't a kind of, okay, what's the, what's the intellectual silver bullet? We just Mm -hmm. need to teach people here. It's much more Mm -hmm. difficult than that
1: so carl I'm, i I'm found myself continually thinking of this question as i'm working through your book as pastors, you know we're trying to think about how does this affect the people that we're shepherding and it, it strikes me that most people in my church have never read Rousseau, you know they know the names Marx and Freud, but they've never read them, but pretty much everybody today believes that you can do whatever you set your heart to, and that to deny that statement is is not just like silly, but morally bad. But can you kind of connect the dots? I mean, why does everyone in my church think that their cousin is somehow brave to assert their sexuality, even if that person doesn't necessarily agree that biblically it's, it's, a, it's a good thing? How do the like high-level intellectual ideas that have shaped Western culture work their way down into our kind of gut-level Interactions
2: again. It's a it's a complicated story, but I would say one of the ways is uh, most definitely through pop culture. the the role of popular media and now even more the role of the internet things like that Mm. that i've said this relative to gay marriage i'm I'm pretty sure that the sea change in american views of gay marriage was not the result of lots and lots of people reading robbie george in princeton and finding his natural law arguments wanting Mm -hmm. it was watching will and grace knowing a pleasant gay couple having these messages of you know life is all about the individual finding their fulfillment and being happy and that's a pervasive and powerful message and i and i think as as christians it affects us all we are we're intuitive beings i think rousseau is correct in seeing that uh, christian uh, human beings have empathetic instincts we tend to empathize with each other we tend not on the whole to hurt want to hurt each other we regard people who want to hurt other people as as being bad so i think there's a whole host of things the technological part of our human mm-hmm. nature, pop culture, all of these things uh, pressing in on us. And also it becomes costly. The other The other side of it is it becomes easier to affirm certain things than to say no. Uh, I have never been invited thus far by uh, anybody to attend a gay wedding. Uh, I know if I was, I, for my own conscience, I would have to say no. I've uh, been in the wedding liturgy when somebody says, you know, does anybody know any reason why these two people should not be joined together in marriage? <laughs> I'd have to get up and walk out at that point, which would be ruder than saying no in the first place. Mm, uh, right. But I know that that if and when that day comes and I say no, it, it could cost me a friendship. It could right. cost me more than that. So I think the costliness of standing against the tide is something that's uh, that's tough.
0: And it it, it also seems like, Part of the symptom of individualism too, just that we don't have a middle category that can say that there's a, a way to accept in the midst of differences, as opposed to affirm wholly. Like there's no there's no ability to do only one of those. You either affirm or you reject, and so much of the right. Cause, when you think about the, even the, the technical, what it means to be an expressive individual, right? You're putting yourself out there. There's a vulnerability that you say that is being implied there that in a positive sense is is seen as sacred, that we should value this, other people's expression of their individuality or what have you. But it seems like it's it's led to a fragility, a social fragility that Gosh, it's 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 like we we have uh, we've used the categories of affirmation versus formation. There is no expectation or even seen as a good thing the idea that we should be formed by something or someone outside of ourselves. Can can you talk a little bit about like? I, I I know we we talked a little bit about how like social media is is this kind of digital liturgy that sets us up with these expectations yeah. and it's formative itself, but like what else, especially historically, inside or outside the church, is contributing to this too?
2: That's again very good question with no straightforward answer. I would think part of it is uh, the. The argument that Yuval Levine, the, the, Yuval's Jewish, he works at the Ethics and Public Policy Centre, he's made a very good case, both in articles and in a recent book, for uh, seeing a lot of the problems we have today as, as relating to a crisis in institutions, mm-hmm. that we have, we've lost confidence in, in the old institutions. We might you know, somewhat simplistically reduce them to the nation as it emerged in the 19th century, the hmm. church, Or the synagogue, and Mm -hmm. the family, and there have been problems in all three of those. Nations have done bad things. The church has been shown to be corrupt. Uh, Some people have come from abusive families. There's evidence out there. You know, they're not perfect institutions. What's happened though is that the the imperfections, the corruption, I think, has come to overwhelm us in our Mm -hmm. imaginations, such that we no longer think of these institutions as trustworthy in places that can be formed, where we might be formed, and and Levine's comment, and I think it's uh, a provocative but also a true one, is that institutions have ceased to be places of formation and have become Mm -hmm. places of performance. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, when you think about it, that's very interesting and a a very worrying development within within culture. Another aspect of what you're pointing to as well is, and this is one of the ironies, you talked about fragility there, is that Mm -hmm. the more we've come to emphasize the the rights and the well-being of the psychological individual the more if you like libertarian we become on that front the more authoritarian we require governments to be that we now have a, you know we now have a we now have a situation where precisely because we'll allow the individual to decide their own gender the government has to police pronouns <laughs> You know, mm. It's 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 odd that we have these mm. uh, these paradoxes, if you like, emerging. Mm. So, yeah, very good question, and, wow. and, and many many complicated facets to it. I think
1: our regular listeners are going to think that we put you up to dropping in because. <laughs> It was my in, in implicit goal, I don't think Brad and I stated this, to not quote him this episode because we've done <laughs> that so frequently. His Yeah, his, his book has been super influential in, in Brad and my thinking. One of the things that I'm, I'm curious to get your input on, as I think about the narrative of this whole thing and you know, the narrative that institutions are outmoded and that we don't need them is fairly compelling at this point. You also a few minutes ago talked about the narrative of will and grace sort of normalizing you know homosexuality in in, in american culture i 'm curious to get your thoughts on what does it look like to tell the better story I, I think about like every every Disney movie tells the story of the you know the princess who rejects her traditional upbringing to go and discover who she truly is you know that that's some, there 's something compelling about that but what what is the story that looks like? a lonely 20-something who's drowning in boredom and sort of gives up his freedom to love a woman each morning and a career that is sometimes grueling, but seems to somehow take on the purpose of what God's doing in the world in a way that he doesn't fully understand. I mean, what, what does that narrative look like for yeah. uh, the church to, to tell?
2: I mean, it's, again, it, it may look slightly different in different places. I yeah. would say a couple of things in response to that. One, people still want to belong. I teach in the humanities capstone course at Grove City. One of the questions I raise with the students is, you know, why is it that my father's earliest memories were hit, were running down to the bomb shelter in Birmingham to avoid the Blitz when the Luftwaffe mm. were trying to kill him and his family every day, uh, and yet today in twenty first century America nobody lives with that fear, and yet we have a more anxiety ridden society than ever before, and I say one of the one of the reasons I think is we have thinner communities. People, mm. humans instinctively want to belong, but we don't have places to belong anymore, and I. I, I say this in the book i i think it's one of the things we could learn from the lgbtq movement uh why have they been so stunningly successful they've given people who didn't belong a place to really belong hmm. and hmm. made them powerful so i think part of the story is churches need to be powerful communities that's and you know, that's not easy because you know you don't want to be a cult <laughs> there's always this balance between you know we want we we, we don't want to Run up to the top of the hill and, and form a monastic community. There might be worse things we could do, but we don't want to do that. Nor do we want to be the Branch Davidians. You know, we we, we don't want to be a cult. We right. have to somehow learn how to be in this world, connected to this world, but a strong mm. community uh, nonetheless. So I would say that's certainly part of the of the solution. One of
0: the kind of expressions of our my church's vision that people I like it could it could go i could go a year without saying this and people will still bring it up and that is that we want to be the kind of church where you don't have to believe in order to belong and we've added this recently since you know becoming yuval levin fanboys and if you're not open to becoming also then there's going to be a ceiling on your experience of belonging can you go into more detail of what you just said like what does the church need to recover and or learn from those places or communities that, that our neighbors are finding significantly more belonging within? What is it that is they are finding there that the church should absolutely have the monopoly on because we have greater reason for that to exist and be embodied in the world?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think in one simple word, I might say hospitality. I mean, hospitality is, is central to the Old Testament. I'm just working through, in, in my daily devotions, just read uh, uh, Genesis 19. And of course, when you think of Genesis mm. 19, my, my, my mind always goes to Judges 19. And you know, the moment in Judges 19, mm. where it changes from a farcical comedy to something rather sinister, is when they arrive in the town square and nobody takes them in. You know mm. that this is a dysfunctional city in Israel. Mm. Because nobody, nobody shows them hospitality. And that's part of the character of God. He's the God who loves the widow, the orphan, et cetera, et cetera. So mm. I think hospitality has to be central to this. And what does that look like? It looks like having people around to dinner on a Sunday. It looks like opening your home to people. It looks like You know, as I as my wife and I, we've escaped COVID. We live in the middle of nowhere, so we've not had COVID yet. But some people in our church have had COVID. So, Mm. hey, we we did a grocery run for a family. You know, I'm not saying that, Mm. say, hey, look at how I sacrificed my church. I didn't. But but I'm just part of a church where the instincts are when you hear somebody's not, you know, can't get out and get groceries, Mm. you you contact them and and help them. Mm. I say to my wife this morning, she meets with a number of the ladies from church uh, for Bible study each week. And because we live in the middle of nowhere, I said, you know, if you didn't have that Bible study, you wouldn't see anybody during the week at the moment. Mm. Uh, And I'm thinking, what about, you know, the non-Christian people around? Do do they they actually see anybody during lockdown? Mm. So I think just being... Uh, that church community, and then thinking about how to take that into your own neighborhood. It's very simple. Mm. It's a very simple thing, but I think it can yeah. be powerful.
0: Can I ask a question on that? That yeah, I want to apply that to what you said about whether or not you would go to uh, respond to an invitation to go to a, a gay wedding. Isn't there an argument that could be made that your turning down an invitation actually has more to do about more to do with an expressive individualism that is, uh, saying you don't align with what I believe. So I'm not, I'm not going to participate in hospitality by, by attending there. Like, isn't there an argument that could be made that like the hospitable thing to do in that situation would be to, to say yes to that RSVP. And despite the disagreement you have,
2: yeah and i've heard christians make that case my response would be you know, hospitality is not the the ultimate and only good under which all other goods have to be ordered i would say hospitality is is one good i mean uh, take a really extreme example you know an on-the-run serial killer knocks on my door asking me to take him in and hide him, I'm going to say no. You know, that's not a hos—that's not a hospitable thing. Now, that's an extreme example. But I would say with the gay wedding, is the reason that I'm saying no, is it because I want to spurn hospitality, I don't want to be hospitable? I, I would say no. It's because I can't be there when somebody says, do you know any reason why these two people shouldn't hmm. be joined together? Were that couple to... Uh, invite me to dinner, I would go. And I might even, yeah. in, in in turning down the, the the wedding invitation, saying, I can't come for conscious reasons, but my wife and I would love to have you both over for dinner mm-hmm. when you return. Uh, uh, so I, I could see ways of, of I mean, I, I feel the pinch of what you're saying. And I think we, mm-hmm. as Christians, shouldn't dismiss it out of hand, but I, I think there are ways of mitigating mitigating the the appearance mm. of lack of hospitality mm. there um yeah. if i live i don't but if i live next to a gay couple and i i, I would do what i'd do for my neighbors now i'd help them clear the path from snow or, you know, i'd have no trouble in just being an ordinary neighbor mm. a wedding has yeah, a certain significance that <laughs> that means hospitality has to be set in relation to some greater Reality at that. And I point. feel
0: like if the church were, were were far more intentional to emphasizing that follow up piece of, but I would love to have you over for dinner. Here's a gift for for you in, in ways that you can. Like if we can go above and beyond. Like I feel like that. Gosh, there there might be a a different tone or tenor to. Hmm. The the maybe it wouldn't be culture wars, it'd just be culture conflict. Maybe.
2: <laughs> well, I would say Jesus is an example. I mean, Jesus hangs around with prostitutes. Now, I don't know that I, I I have serious doubts as to whether that meant Jesus visited brothels. You know uh, <laughs> and, and I don't mean that in any unwholesome. I just mean geographically mm-hmm. visited brothels. But we know that he he was kind to prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Is, is that simply not a version of of what? what we're sort of advocating here.
1: I was st- struck by the kind of parallel between you noted that you didn't talk much about the role of technology in the book, but invite people over for dinner, practice hospitality and welcoming people into community strike me as fairly low tech <laughs> solutions to very modern problems. Maybe there's actually some beautiful ancient, you know, wisdom in Especially, you know the, the, anci- the ancient biblical practice of hospitality.
2: Uh, and I think it's a human thing. I've said to students, you know, some of the the greatest things in life uh, are, are not to do with things you think. Mm. It can be sitting on your deck, having a glass of wine with friends in the summer. Mm-hmm. It could be sharing mm-hmm. a meal. You know, we don't just eat and drink to to refuel yeah. ourselves.
1: Yeah, It's exactly. a
2: delight being in the company of, of friends. My wife and I, we meet with three other couples once a month and, and go around each other's houses in, in turn to, to have a mm-hmm. meal together. And it's one of the mm-hmm. high points of my month. It's simple. Uh, yeah. we, we all come yeah. from different walks of life. We just get together and enjoy each other's yeah. company. I think that's powerful and important. Yeah.
1: I think that that reminds me of when I was a college pastor half a decade ago, often people in our church would ask, you know, how can we, how can we be involved in serving college students? And the first thing I would always say is invite them over, serve them food and let them do their laundry yes. without having to like feed all their quarters <laughs> in the machine and don't view them first as like potential babysitters, you know, like college <laughs> students are people too. And if you, if you treat them like human beings, you will develop a relationship. And there, there isn't this perfect technological you know, technique that we need to discover in order to do ministry.
2: Yeah. And my experience with students is that having them around for, for dinner can actually be some of the most powerful memories they have of college. I've stayed yeah. in touch with students that I've never really got to know as students, but we had them over to dinner and, and just yeah. connected and enjoyed yeah. their company.
1: So Carl, uh, kind of returning to the big picture a narrative of of your book, sort of the psychologization of the self, the sexualization of psychology, and then the politicization, I can't say any of those words, of sex. <laughs> you, you talk about transgenderism as sort of the, the furthest step along that continuum. I mean, you even just noted earlier, new President Biden's executive order uh, with regard to transgenderism in sports, is this sort of like the end of the line? Is there something that comes next, or have we sort of marched down the road of expressive individualism to its logical conclusion, after which you know Western culture just begins to crumble, or <laughs> what 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 happens from here?
2: Well, I in the book, of course, I I, I don't quote the Bible on this point, but I quote Shakespeare, King Lear as long as you can say it is the worst, it is not the worst, <laughs> which is a slightly depressing way of looking at life. But, I mean, I, I I think with the sexual revolution, I hesitate to say this is, you know, okay, we've reached the end. There are other things that could be legitimated, and for taste reasons I won't even mention hmm. them on the program, but not all sexual practices and preferences are as yet, thankfully, legitimated right. in our society, and I suspect... Some of them will come next. I've been seeing uh, certain certain of those begin to sort of not exactly make it into the mainstream, but certainly start to lose the mm. stigma that they would have mm. had 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So I think we could yet see more. Whether society is sustainable in the long run, that's an interesting question because Freud uh, certainly thought that for civilization to exist, there had to be a certain level of sexual hmm. repression, a certain curtailing of the sexual instincts. Reef was one of my yeah. heroes that I use in the book. Reef, you know, develops that into a whole sociological theory. Um, it is hard to see how a society with no sexual taboos beyond. Uh, and I don't even think this is particularly powerful, as I say in the book, beyond the mm-hmm. idea of consent can really sustain itself mm-hmm. long term. And, and we see hints of that in the hashtag me too movement. Uh, whatever people think of the hashtag meTo movement, I think one of the really good things it does is is indicates that, hey, sex is not mm-hmm. just recreation. Poke somebody in the eye that's unpleasant, and you may well be cautioned by the police mm-hmm. because of it. Rape somebody. And you're going to be in really serious trouble. Why? People recover from being poked in the eye. It doesn't shape their whole future life. One bad
1: sexual encounter ruins somebody's life.
2: Yeah. When I was a pastor, the people I met who'd been sexually abused, it shaped their whole life. Mm, It shaped their whole life.
1: So, Carl, I was going to ask, I I noticed that you signed the preface to your book in, uh, I think it said August 2019, and my wife's an author so i have some understanding of the publishing process being what it is you finished this book you know roughly 17 months ago and man a lot has happened in that time the year that we'll live in infamy right the pandemic a <laughs> uh, polarization racial tensions an insurrection in the united states would you say that you know the events of the last year have sort of borne your work out? Is there anything you would revise? Is it you know has it been turned? It's just the same, turned up to eleven. I mean, what?
2: I'm surprised that QAnon have not claimed that I stirred it all up in order to make my book more saleable. Um, at some point in the year, I think it was once somebody at the publisher at Crossway said to me, "Man, your book is going to fly yeah. off the shelves." Yeah. I would say, uh, you know, from a, it, it sounds a very bad way to put it, but I couldn't have asked for a better year to market
1: my book. Yeah. Uh,
2: having said that, I think, yeah, it's uh, you know, a lot of what I've, I say in the book, I, I think clearly it plays over into the way the racial issue mm. is is playing out in in contemporary society. It plays into the... The tensions uh, uh, on both sides of the, of the Donald Trump, Joe mm-hmm. Biden kind of issue, uh, this psychologizing of the self and this breakdown of any kind of common identity, that's really right at the heart mm-hmm. of, of what we see happening before mm-hmm. us right now.
0: Gosh, it's so interesting to hear you say that because, you know, like any good podcast interviewing hosts, you know, we stalked you before, you know, having you on and I can't remember if it was right before or right after our, our initially scheduled time to talk. You published an article with first things on critical race theory.
2: (laughs) Oh yes.
0: (laughs) yeah, And I can imagine and won't put you on the spot, the kind of feedback you have received for it. And I want to be careful, like not to go too far down the rabbit hole because
2: there's can, can I make a comment sure. on the feedback, actually, before we talk? Yeah. What has interested me about the feedback is this. I had a friend drop me a note and say, I bet you've been getting a lot of hate emails over this. I have not mm. had a single one. Mm. Every email I've received so far, and I think things are dying down a bit now, mm. has been positive. Mm. All of the hate has come on Twitter mm. and blogs. And that fascinates me because, in some senses, to email mm. me, you know, it's not quite the same as confronting me in the street But you're kind of making yourself Mm. vulnerable in a way to a response. I don't respond to hate emails ever, by the way, other than saying, yes, I completely agree with you. You (laughs) nailed me sort of thing to defuse them. But it's Mm. fascinated me that, yeah, there's been a a, a tidal wave of, Mm. of anger, but it's all out there in Twitter land or blog land, none of it's come to our email inbox.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't have a whole lot of neighbors in uh, Boulder County who read first things. Uh, so there may be something <laughs> a little bit related there, but I'm glad it is good to know that you're, you're talking about important things and not getting hate mail. That's, that's mm. a win. Um, <laughs> that gives me some hope. Uh, the, the thing that I wanted to ask about it, especially as it regards individualism, and I'm not aware of too many people talking about, Critical race theory, especially as it result as it relates to individualism. So I really wanted to ask you about this because and, and let me just show you my cards or just like kind of explain like how I'm engaging yeah. with this and and feel free to critique or, or speak into this. But there is a a deficiency within the American church that is inherently an individualism complicity that I see many people in my own church coincidentally called the table for the reasons of hospitality you were talking about earlier that really resonates like i don't have anybody in, in the church in my church being like hey you know, critical race theory this is really great no but there are aspects of the like oppressor versus oppressed power dynamics that are principles and and kind of like a yeast that that percolates into the culture and they don't even have a category or a label for it but yeah it does influence them in some ways that is like okay well let's let's actually slow down here and not assume this right However, what, what strikes me is, is one of the reasons why I feel like it feels like there is such a intense reaction from the church against critical race theory. And what makes a lot of people in my own church very sympathetic to the principles is how much it is a critique of individualism. And so could you maybe talk about like, not in a prescriptive way, like, and I know this is, this is probably overly simplistic, like, there's there's a descriptive reality of, of critical race theory, and then there's a prescriptive reality. And I think we can all say, like, prescriptively, this is problematic. Descriptively, we think scripture has a better language and categories for this, but it's not necessarily as dissonant. Can you just talk about how, like, connect this to your thesis around expressive individualism? Because it it feels like there is a, a corporate or shared identity piece that we are lacking and therefore don't even have anything other than the machete of condemnation to, to, to yeah. throw it at critical race theory.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, the reasons behind my article was I, I I do, I, and I genuinely want to try to find a better way forward. It seems to me as an outsider to the United States, I, I mean, I've been here 20 years, but I'm really an outsider. It seems, does the church have a race problem? Yes, it does, I think, that the, there is a, a race problem in America. Is it as bad as it was in the 1950s? I don't think so. And that kind of comes to, to your sort of question in that, if we're looking at, at the 1950s on the race issue, you can see, you know, you've got segregation, you have segregated bathrooms, you have places you have to sit on the bus, you have voter suppression, there's a whole host of stuff going on that's very material. You can point to it and say, there, there, there. Uh, and there is a form, there's a sort of older form of critical race theory that really addressed those kind of issues, a little bit like, you know, older forms of Marxism looked at, you know, wages, law, these kind of things. You know, that law there is prejudiced against. I think what we have now with, with a lot of critical race theory is, is a theory predicated on this the sort of the psychological that's why language has become even more important now than it was in the 50s. Mm. There is one word, I won't mention it, but if you mention it, it's career-ending mm. now. Uh, and yet it's just one offensive word uh, among among many, that the whole debate has become much more psychologically oriented. And I think some of the reaction to my piece uh, reflects that, in that you know, there was one PCA pastor publicly rebuked a, a member of his congregation for linking to my article – even though the pastor hadn't read it. Hmm. And it you know that interested me in the kind of, oh, yeah, we, we can't look at counter narratives because that's oppressive to us. And of course, it works both ways. One of the things I, I, I want to say is, you know, we use, as you said, critical race theory for the, for want of a better word, for the right. I know that that's rather simplistic, hmm. but for the right, critical race theory has become this label, yeah. if you can pop it on somebody, or cultural Marxism, if you can pop that on somebody, then you disenfranchise them from the conversation. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, my concern is that white privilege, you know, if the left can can point to Truman and say, he's a privileged white guy, then I'm disenfranchised Mm -hmm. from the conversation. And both critical race theory and its opposite, if you like, are, to me, two sides of the same tribal, psychological, individual sort of coin. And, you know, hmm. you know I'd, what I'd want to say is if we're going to address the race issue in the American church, uh, we, we, we have to do it in a way that's better than critical race theory. Hmm. And, of course, in my First Things article, a lot of my First Things article was actually was kind of asking questions. When you say everything that white Christians have learned is wrong— exactly what do you mean mm. if if it's a rhetorical way of saying hey many white christians have used christianity as an excuse for racism or ignoring the race question i've no problem with that you know there is no substantial disagreement if you mean that you know every presbyterian church doesn't teach christianity that's a much more serious accusation. And and I just want some clarity on that kind of thing. Well,
0: and this, this seems to go back so much to that. What we were talking about earlier around narrative and telling a better story, because one of the things I have been so, I don't know, flabbergasted in the conversation is that like the three of us, we are ordained Presbyterian ministers. And that means we have an essentially covenantal approach to, uh, our understanding of scripture and of life in general, human nature community etc and and the the idea of covenant is at once both individualized and corporate or collective in a sense that doesn 't choose between the two and actually gives some unbelievably robust ability to explain how something like racism can have both personal individual implications as well as societal structural not just implications but like outbuildings of that original sin that has that still needs to be critiqued and constructed but like anytime you talk about one or the other you're immediately seen if it's positive that's 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 the only place you're coming from versus the other side that's the only places you're that you're coming from and so like Everything you're saying about the, the free speech and kind of classical liberal threat, the, the threat that CRT poses to classical liberalism and our ability to have constructive dialogue, that all makes so much sense. I I, I wonder, and I kind of want to just ask, especially like, it doesn't feel like we have earned the right to be listened to if we can't tell that covenantal story. And I'm, I've been discouraged by how little I hear from of that from anybody, of 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 casting that kind of a vision for a more human flourishing paradigm. Are you seeing that anywhere? Like where can we go for that better story, obviously scripture, but like to hear it connected in this way?
2: It's, it's very hard. And I think, you know, in, in casting it that way, you're also pointing to another of the problems that I think, uh, uh, the critical race theory, certainly in the way it's being promoted, presents, and that's we cannot just have, for want of a better word, legal categories to solve this problem yeah. because mm. it's ultimately it's a it's a relational, it's a community problem. Mm-hmm. So you know you can have repar let's let's say you could have reparations, but you, know, you could give every African American in the country a hundred thousand dollars but does that mean racism goes away mm. I, I don't think so you know it, it and i i'm the jury's out for me on reparations i'm open to be, i don't think it's a good idea i'm open to being persuaded i genuinely don't know i do know that it won't solve the problem in itself mm. because there's a relational mm. dimension and then i think it comes down to to churches and and i have a real problem with this pressing for okay we need to segregate the churches that's coming from vocal uh, members of the African American community, you know, white black people need to pull out of white majority churches and form their own churches.
1: Mm.
2: That, I, in some ways, you know, I, have not, I haven't heard that. I could sympathize. Uh, uh, it's huh. been up on Twitter. I've sort of seen a bit of it this week in the wake of of my. Uh, I'm thinking. I, I understand. I can understand maybe some of the pain that lies mm. behind that call. Mm. You know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, belittle what that call is reacting sure. to i don't want to deny that it's there i would want to raise the question of is that going to help long term with that this covenantal mm. thing that you're talking about yes perhaps it is a bit naive just to trot out pieties about we need to be colorblind i i think that needs to be does colorblind mean we just treat everybody like a white guy you know that that seems to be a a, a legitimate mm. fear But my concern is that if we lose, that there is no Greek, there is no Jew. If we lose that uh, steadfast love, the book of Ruth, you know, Ruth is a Moabite. And I, I don't think that we're meant to read the book of Ruth as seeing Boaz as this kind of Paternalistic, manipulative guy who makes her dependent on him by allowing her to glean. Mm-hmm. I think he's showing her Heset. Yeah. He's showing her strong, powerful, covenantal love. How we do that, that's hard. I think one of the things that's encouraged me, I think in 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 my own experience, little experience of just dipping my toe into the c r t debate last has been the number of nice emails I've had from ordinary Christians mm-hmm. who aren't on Twitter saying, "Thank you for putting your head above the parapet and if if, as I hope, Twitter is not representative of the church, <laughs> there is a chance that at grassroots level, white Christians and black Christians may develop really good friendships, may develop churches that, where they are in a covenantal love kind of situation with each other. It goes back to the technological thing, I would say. One of the things that, you know, I, I just wish Christians would come off Twitter or I wish Christians would use Twitter merely to linking to articles by Robbie George. You know, that would be an intelligent use of Twitter or Yuval Levine. The the the. What I see on Twitter, not from every Christian, but is so Mm. emblematic of the anger of this Mm. individualistic age, I don't think it helps not simply with the race issue, but with any issue in the church.
1: I, I know we're starting to run towards the end of our time. I think that so much of what what you um, articulated there is compelling. And I wonder if maybe as a way to try to land this conversation, can I take my life in my own hands and sort of point this back towards you a little bit, Dr. Truman? Uh, in listening to a few interviews that you've done in the last couple of month or so around your book well so two things one is i, I want to say I, I i've wondered if i've detected a difference in tone in this book from some of your previous work and then uh, in your interview with carl uh, with um, colin hansen there was some good-natured kind of back and forth about having exchanged slaps with each other at (laughs) at various points. I've also heard you say that this is not a time for Presbyterians and Baptists to beat up on each other. I mean, is this a shift that you have made consciously, or is, is that maybe a... Am I reading too much into that? Is that something that you recognize? Is that the fruit of the research, or... Because there, there's a there, there's just a, a real winsomeness in your book in the way that you're describing the life experiences of many people who, you know, as a as a OPC minister, I know you would have some theological disagreements with.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's been a very conscious move on my part, really, over the last four or five years. Uh, partly as a result mm-hmm. of being a pastor. Mm-hmm. You know, as an academic, I you know, I love the cut and thrust of the <laughs> academic world and, and you know, and that's that's where I am. But as a pastor I gotta mm. persuade people. So that played a role in it. Mm. Partly I think just kindness mm. I received personally from catholic friends from orthodox hmm. from rodrea uh you, you know, that that makes that, that that has an effect especially when you're being beaten up by people that you actually basically agree with theologically right, <laughs> right. it kind of it gives you a more small yeah. c catholic view of things uh i'm also i teach hmm. undergraduates hmm. you know uh, you know uh, undergraduates I've got to persuade them. Mm. I have mm. to persuade them. I can't come out swinging. I could throw a few punches, but I try to make sure every time I throw a punch at somebody else, I throw a punch at myself. Mm. I parody myself. Uh, and and I think that's that's been, been very uh, uh, important to me. And also just convicted by mm. biblical teaching that uh, a kind word turns away wrath uh you know i think the election of donald trump um for a lot of people that polarized them for me it made me more moderate actually because Mm. i began to realize you know i i don't like this man i don't like what he stands for but he's the president i need to respect him and he's doing some good things Mm. and i actually you know i think he's probably better than the alternative in in Mm. 2016 and i don't want to find myself being forced into a mold so yeah very much tried to Tone it down. I I said, I mean, Karen Swallow Pryor has an interview with me where she sort of politely (laughs) asked the same question. I essentially said, you know, hey, I I kind of grew up basically, Um, (laughs) became an adult. Mm. I I mean, I I love I love polemics Mm. and I've got a I have a response coming out on Monday at Reformation 21 to the critics of my critical race theory piece. And every ounce of my being wanted to get the submachine gun out and have a go. But I decided, no, actually, and I, and I rationalized it to myself this way. I, I said, you know, actually, being nice is the greatest polemical tool <laughs> that <there> is. <laughs> because it, 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 really, it really puts your critics in the position of, mm. what do we do with this firm but But when we've been Mm. so rude about him, and he's firm and critical, but very polite. I I love, I I really appreciate
0: the vulnerability (laughs) you just demonstrated by saying that kindness (laughs) is actually not the end. It's the means to another end. (laughs) But it strikes me too that that just to to really land the plane and pull this full circle, like you're, you're describing a posture of hospitality. And and that is is persuasion.
2: And in writing this book, I wrote it always in the back of my mind with two things in the back of my mind. When I'm writing about a particular thinker, would that thinker think I treated them fairly? And the other thing in my mind was, could I, with good conscience, if a student at Grove, say, comes out Mm. as gay or mm-hmm. struggling with their gender, could I in good conscience give this book to them and not be personally mm-hmm. worried they might be offended by anything? And That was really my, my guiding mm-hmm. principle, that I, I, I'm not in the game simply of, of helping mm-hmm. my allies think more clearly. I want to help people I disagree mm-hmm. with think more clearly as well. And I thought, if this book is dismissed, I want it to be dismissed because people simply... Hate the stand mm. I take at the end, rather than because yeah. of any flaws in the argumentation. And Publishers Weekly obliged; they did a very nice interview with me, which they published, and then they did an anonymous review where the person said, "It's a meticulously argued book, but Truman's a, a hateful mm. bigot." Kind of thing. I thought, yes, that was the reaction I wanted. Oh, no. <laughs> you know. Uh, you know. That the only the only evidence i'm a hateful bigot is i happen to disagree mm. with you you can't pull a sentence mm. out or anything and say he, he spoke disrespectfully mm. about people
1: <laughs> wow wow well that, that that's that's uh thank you for your vulnerability and in, in answering that question i i have to i have to be honest i wondered how to ask that delicately as i was reading the book but thank you so much for being with us the rise and triumph of the modern self is I think a book that is going to be really important for the church, especially Mm -hmm. going forward. I think you're putting your finger on the issues that are animating so much of our cultural debate and giving pastors like us the categories to understand what we're dealing with as we pastor our people. So Carl Truman, thank you so much for uh, your book. I hope that 2021 is just awful enough to continue to make the book sell uh, really well, (laughs) Uh, but hopefully let's down in almost every other conceivable way.
0: Or or, or maybe how about it's, it's so good that the book is needed as a retrospective and not as a, an emergency need.
2: (laughs) Hey, it might be so bad that the book looks like a description of the good old days, you know. <laughs> oh.
1: Jesus come
0: soon. That's right. That's right. Thank you so much Dr. Truman. We really appreciate
1: it.
2: Thanks very much.
1: Thanks so much for joining us today. Please don't forget to like and share and subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Our new theme music was recorded by the very talented Danny Rankin, who also designed our logo. We'll be back next week helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world on Everything Just Changed.